song. Well, I, I think I've resolved to, uh, at least for this seri- series, to start every sermon with a joke. So here we go. The minister was preoccupied with thoughts of how he was going to ask the congregation to come up with more money than they were expecting for repairs to the church building. Sounds familiar. Therefore, he was annoyed to find that the regular organist was sick and a substitute had been brought in at the last minute. The substitute wanted to know what to play. Here's a copy of the service, the pastor said impatiently but you'll have to think of something to play after I make the announcement about the finances. During the service, the minister paused and said, Brothers and sisters, we are in great difficulty. The roof repairs cost twice as much as we expected, and we need $4,000 more. Any of you who can pledge $100 or more, please stand up. At that moment, the substitute organist played the Star-Spangled Banner. And that is how the substitute became the regular organist. It's <laughs> good stuff. So we've, become a, uh, we've begun a sermon series on the church. And as I mentioned last week, when coming into a series like this one, there are some big hurdles to clear. The first hurdle I mentioned is the fact that not everyone's experience with the church has been even close to good. The church has frustrated people and hurt people and confused people. Some of you in this room, maybe, the church has deeply disappointed you or mistreated you, and and this happens more often than I think we'd like to admit. So when a pastor comes along and decides to preach a sermon series on the importance of the church, on everyone's need for the church, there are some people who can't get past the pain that's been caused them by the church. And that pain is real, and sometimes that pain is lingering. So that's the first hurdle. The second hurdle that I mentioned was the fact that some of you hear about or hear that we're doing a series on the church, and you don't see at all how it would apply to what you're dealing with in your life. Maybe you've got marital problems or money problems or health problems. Maybe things are really pressing in on you right now. You're very stressed. So to you, learning about what God's Word has to say about the church is sort of nowhere on your radar. You know, you want just some practical teaching. Give me at least just some encouragement, maybe some inspiration. So that's a hurdle. Then there's the third hurdle, and I mentioned this last week as well, and it's the awesome heritage and history that exists in a 116-year-old church. And for those of you visiting, this is a 116-year-old church. And with that heritage, there comes at least a few patterns and traditions that may be widely held, may be widely cherished, but at the same time, those traditions may not always be the teaching of Scripture. So we'll need to be careful with that hurdle. And you remember that last week I shared a quotation from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, affectionately called the Prince of Preachers, a man whose influence on the church and love for the church was as great as anyone's ever, he said, you that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, 
If I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. And so, that's why we've called our series Imperfect. We recognize together that this thing we call the church is not perfect. We don't claim to be perfect. We're not trying to fool anyone into thinking that we're perfect. We are far from perfect, aren't we? We screw up every day. We battle sin and pride and lust and jealousy and greed and anger and pettiness. So real quick, we agree that no one in this room has it all pulled together. The church is a sanctuary for sinners. It's a hospital for the spiritually sick. But the Bible also tells us that it's a gathering of the saints. It tells us that it's a fold for Christ's sheep. It's a house for God's family. And it's the church that God has ordained to express his tangible presence on this earth. The church is God's perfect plan for his people. His chosen tool to grow his people, to nurture his people, to reach his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's the church that God has used, is using, and will continue to use to do all of those things. So as broken as the church is, imperfect as it may be, Christ died for it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has a perfect plan for his imperfect church. So last week, we get into the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Go ahead if you brought your Bible and turn there. We'll, we'll start there in just a moment. We're going to finish up that chapter today, and what that passage we looked at last week, the passage Jared read a moment ago, what it showed us was the church is this amazing thing. Chapter 2, verse 17 says that it first consists of God bringing together people who were both far off and near. And in Paul's day, Paul was the writer of Ephesians, in Paul's day what that meant was the church had brought Gentile and Jew together. Paul says to the Gentile, you were far off. And to the Jew, Paul says, you were near. And so the gospel of peace, the message of Jesus, has brought these groups together. They are together. And so in our study last week, we took that thinking and we applied it to our day. We said, a church like ours is comprised of some who might have grown up with Christian parents. They, they, they grew up going to church and learning scripture and memorizing their books of the Bible, showing up at Awana looking like you know, General Patton with all their badges and patches and pins and awards. And, and, and they are the ones that we might say are near. And at the same time, our church may also be comprised, comprised of those who had, who had none of that sort of training, none of that experience. People who didn't grow up in church. People who still may not know the books of the Bible, who have about two, maybe three on a good day verses memorized, who maybe think it's a little weird when church people call each other brother, you know? Those are the people who we might say are far off. But with both of those groups, God broke through. God saved both by his grace, and it didn't take more grace to save one group than it did the other. Both needed a lot of grace. 
The gospel of peace came to both, near and far off, came to them in a way that rescued them from their sin and from their separation from God. And not only that, Paul goes on to say that within that diversity, within the far off and the near together, within that, the members of the church are fellow citizens. They may be aliens and strangers in the world, but in the church, they have a common citizenship, all having the same rights, all the same same standing and value in the church's existence. And then lastly, we saw that Paul describes the church as a household, basically saying the church is a family. We're a family, so when you do call each other brother or, or sister, it's not weird. We do it because it's actually true. Jesus is our older brother. God is our father. We are a family. Therefore, where we landed in seeking to answer last week's question, that question is, what is the church? We concluded that the church is a people, not a place. The church is a people, not a place. In other words, you don't go to church. You are the church. Now, church buildings are everywhere in Enid, and I'm grateful for that. But those buildings are just tools for ministry, just places for those who love Christ to gather and to worship and be discipled and to build one another up, places to strategize about how Christians can be more intentional about their love for those around them, how they can share the gospel in the places where they live and work. But the, but the church is a people, not a place. Those those spaces, those buildings that we say, oh, they're on every church corner, or every street corner, there's a church. They're not holy in and of themselves. They're only holy because God's people gather there. So just to summarize all of that, that section, verses 17, 18, and 19, Paul starts with a wide scope. He says those far and those near. Basically saying the church is a people from everywhere. And God takes those people from everywhere, but they're citizens of nowhere, and he makes them a city, fellow citizens, living together, this city on a hill. And not only that, but he makes them a family, a household of God. The Holy Spirit gives new birth, and God adopts everyone as his kids, as his children. Now then, in our passage today, we'll see that he narrows the scope even further. Let's go ahead and read it together. We're just going to read verses 20 through 22, as Jared read the whole thing a a moment ago. Verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaking of the church, that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. How is the church built? That's what I'm putting in front of us today. If the church was a place or a building, the instructions on how it would be built would be much, much different than what we see here in Ephesians chapter 2. Along with that, those God calls into ministry would also be much, much different. Let me tell you right now, you don't want me physically building anything. Legos, maybe. I do okay with Legos. But with tools, I got nothing. 
Mandy can testify to this. I grew up with a dad who could fix anything, build anything, design anything. He loved that sort of stuff. We never called a handyman growing up. You know, my dad was totally resourceful. Give Jack Reisner a Phillips screwdriver, a soldering iron, maybe a crescent wrench. Man, he would just go to work. He was like MacGyver with those things, right? And here's what's heartbreaking. I didn't get any of that. Nothing. None of it. Those gifts sort of skipped a generation, which is crazy because every single Reisner male in my generation is an engineer. There's five of them. All five of my male cousins are engineers. On a good day, I can do long division, and that's really about it. (laughs) But I say all that to say this. I'd be useless in ministry if the church was about building a building. But it's not a building. We're about building a building. The instructions in God's word about how to build a church are about how to build a people. Incidentally, my engineering cousins, they may have all gotten A's in physics, but they didn't get a lot of dates, if you know what I mean, right? I, I, I did a little bit better in that area, uh, but I, I've always been able to work with people. I like people. I enjoy people. God called me into ministry because the church is a people. So how is the church built? How is this people built? Well, this passage shows us three major components regarding the construction of the church. And ironically, Paul uses architectural language. The church is not a physical building, but Paul uses the language of a physical building to tell us how it's built. He tells the Ephesians three things about how to build the church. He shares the foundation of the church, the cornerstone of the church, and the structure of the church, the physical walls. So let's look first at the foundation of the church. The passage says... Right there, very plainly, the family, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, what we need to be clear about is whether Paul is saying the foundation is the apostles and prophets themselves, or perhaps something else. And so it helps to see that when the phrase the apostles and prophets is used in the New Testament, it's in reference to the highest offices, the two highest offices in the church. And what the apostles and prophets did, notice I said did, because the two categories aren't around anymore, what the apostles and prophets did was proclaim the word of God to the people of God. The apostles is referring to those who saw Jesus and walked with Jesus. Guys who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Guys like Peter and John and James and Paul. These are the apostles And it's not so much that they are the foundation, but that they laid the foundation for the church. The foundation of doctrine. The foundation of teaching connected to the person and the work of Christ. That's the foundation of the church. What is the message of a great deal of the New Testament? It's a message to the church. It's correction for the church. It's encouragement for the church. That's the word of the apostles and prophets. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, No other foundation can a man lay than that which is Christ Jesus. So the apostles and prophets, they're not the foundation but they're their heralds of this apostolic message, and they are the layers of the foundation. They have given us the message of Jesus Christ. So really what Paul means is the foundation laid for the church is the word of God. God gave us his word through the apostles that we might build upon 
that word, that we might be shaped by that word, that we might come into glad submission, come under the word and celebrate the word. No man, no church, no teacher has any real authority except the word of God. That's why this morning we are, we are tied to a text of Scripture. By the grace of God, I'll, I'll never stand up here in the pulpit and say, hey, look at me. Look at what I have to say. Aren't I funny? Aren't I innovative? Don't I have great advice for you? No, I don't want to do that. I want to stand up here and, and say, look at this. Look at what God says. Look how God says this works. Look how God wants to speak to us today. That's what I want to do. Could I find some, some good illustrations, some inspiring stories, maybe a joke that's clean enough to tell in church? Sure, sure, I could do that. And I do that from time to time. But you know how long that stuff lasts in your heart and mind? Even if I find some really good ones, you know how, much, you know, you know how long that lasts? Maybe lunch. It might stay in your mind till lunch. But if the Word of God takes root in your soul... If God's word penetrates your heart and mind, now we're moving. Now we're cooking with gas, right? Because it's the word of God that has been given to shape the people of God. And if we are a people shaped by the word of God, you know what we become? We become a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We become a family that takes care of one another. We become a people who, who reveal the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenlies. Ephesians 3.10 says that even the angels look at the church and marvel at how God has chosen to do his work in the world. That's what we become. But it requires that our foundation be the word of God. Not tradition or custom, but the word. This word stands in authority over us as long as it remains the sure footing under us. Any church or movement or denomination that distances itself from the word of God, that demotes the word's centrality, that movement or that denomination or that church is on the, root, is on the road to ruin. I believe that. And you've seen that. Surely you've seen churches that place their own authority above the word of God instead of under the word of God. It's ruin for those. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, he wrote this. He says, Scripture's authority is not granted by the church. He said, no, the opposite is true. Scripture founded the church. And not only that, not only is God's word foundational and authoritative in the church, but it is absolutely sufficient in its capacity to tell us how to be the church, how to be reconciled to God, and how to be reconciled to one another, and how to live in a functioning community that seeks to bring glory to Jesus. It tells us how to do that. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the word of God. We build on that. We don't add to it. We build on it. It's thick enough. It's sure enough. It's stable enough. It's the word of God. That's point one. Second, second piece of architecture we see in this passage is the cornerstone, which Paul identifies as Jesus Christ himself, the cornerstone. So the word of God delivered by the apostles and prophets is the foundation, and then it's very consistent that the content of that word, Jesus Christ, serves as the cornerstone to the foundation. 
In the ancient world, when construction was, was accomplished, it was primarily accomplished with stones. The cornerstone was the major stone laid down in any building. And the cornerstone had to be large enough to support the superstructure of what was being built. It had to be accurate because the walls were all conformed to the angle of that stone. The cornerstone framed everything. It was the thing to which everything was adapted. The cornerstone was the support, the unifier, the connector, the strength giver. It was really everything in the building. And to the church, that cornerstone is Jesus Christ. The whole house that is the church rests upon Christ. This cornerstone theme is repeated in Scripture, both Old Testament and New. Isaiah 28.16 says, Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. That is pointing us to Jesus Christ. Psalm 118.22 The psalmist writes, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, pointing us to Jesus Christ. And then Acts 4, chapter 11. You've got Peter and John before the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem. They say this. They say, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Christ, the cornerstone. Let me unpack what that means for us practically. It means no aspiration other than knowing, savoring, and seeing Jesus Christ will ever hold the church together. No aspiration other than knowing, savoring, and seeing Jesus Christ will hold the church together. Why is this true? Because it's in Jesus Christ that we can experience the transforming grace of God. And that And that alone enables us to walk with one another in a way that is distinctively Christian. We don't walk in true grace and true love and joy and humility apart from Christ. We just don't. And here's what I mean by that. When when the grace of God comes to you and absolutely wrecks and dismantles you, your pride and your hostility toward God, or even your self-righteousness or your hypocrisy, when that happens, when you make a confession to God about your shortcomings and your failures, when you do that and his response to you isn't punitive, which is to say God doesn't move to smite you, but rather he moves to smother you with his grace and his mercy and his compassion and love, you know what? That does something to you. That deeply, deeply does something to you. When you expect and deserve for this holy God to punish you, and instead he hugs you, that affects you. And here's how it works itself out in the church. When you experience grace, you become an extender of grace. If you haven't experienced this grace, you're not going to extend it because you want justice over grace. Remember Jonah? Yeah, this was Jonah's massive problem, wasn't it? 
And it's a massive problem in the church when its people forsake Jesus Christ and his grace as foundational to the life of the church. Think about how cruddy a place the church would be if nobody extended anybody grace. Some of you are like, yeah, I've been in that church. And the primary problem in churches like that, churches where there is no grace, it isn't that people are just sort of ugly to one another. The problem is it's that few, if anyone there, has ever really experienced grace. And the translation of that is Jesus in those places is not the cornerstone. In those places, the person and work of Christ does not shape and form the church's ministry and relationships and conflict resolution and worship and teaching. He's not the cornerstone. Without experiential grace among those in community community together, all the stones just fall to the ground because people can't be gracious to each other. And if people can't be gracious to one another and forgive one another as they have been forgiven, the church is, I wrote in my notes, the church is just screwed, but I don't want to say it that way, but I just did, so yeah. Christ, the cornerstone, means we've experienced things in Christ that we're able to then extend to others. Puritan Thomas Watson, he's he's brilliant on this. He writes, There is no perfection here. He's speaking of people in the church. There is no perfection here. In some, rash anger prevails. In some, inconstancy In some, too much love of the world. A saint in this life is like gold in the ore. Much dross of infirmity still cleaves to him, yet we love him for the grace that is in him. The best emerald has its blemishes, the brightest stars their twinklings, and the best of the saints have their failings. You that cannot love one another because of his infirmities, how would you have God love you? How would you have God love you? It's good to be reminded that it was while you were at your worst that Christ died for you. It wasn't me on my best day who God loved. God loved me on my worst day. The day I'd be most ashamed of. The day that I most regret. During the moments and actions that I wish that I could go back and change. It's there. It's in that mess that Christ shows up and says, You're mine. I love you. I have purchased you in my blood. That is worth celebrating as a church. That's our celebration. And that's how having Christ as the cornerstone will shape us as a people. We take our position in line with his position, which is our gracious and perfect substitute on the cross. And so the the realities of the gospel fix the lines and the angles of the church. You see that? Last thing, final thing. Paul tells us the church is built with living stones fit together. Twice here he mentions being joined together or built together. The verb in verse 21 for joined together, it's a rare verb in the Greek, and it means every part fits snug. Meaning when God builds his church, it fits. 
It's firm. It's not loose and ill-arranged, unstable or shoddy, but it's solid, cohesive, snug, firm. Every stone fitted perfectly into its place, place without defect or mistake. Do you believe that? That's pretty crazy, is it not? Because, because we have people that have literally been part of this church for like 80 or more years. And we have also people that have just been here a few months. We have people that have been Christians most of their lives, 40 or 50 or 60 years, and others who have been believers, you know, just less than a year. Some mature in their faith. Some are just baby Christians. Some mature in their years, yet immature in their faith. Some immature in their years, yet very mature in their faith. Funny how those things happen. And here's what the Bible is saying. Jesus By the word of God, by being the cornerstone of the church, he creates an environment where the big, mature stones can nestle up against the smaller stones. Where the jagged stones can fit just right against the smooth stones. Where the old stones have a place next to the young stones. And God, because he's God, can take those stones and actually build a people for his name. Now, because we are joined together, as this verse describes, this means that we're in close proximity to one another. Close enough to see each other's flaws and imperfections and jagged edges. And this right here is where and how the church becomes very necessary for your sanctification. In our relating to one another and serving together and having conflict and resolving conflict, God has fit all that together for our sanctification, for our growth, and for our, our, our godliness. The church has mature Christians who are required to be patient with new Christians. And it has struggling Christians needing grace from healthy Christians. And it has rebellious Christians needing discipline from those Christians in positions of authority. All of this is necessary, and it requires being fit together this is, why, this is why you stand in opposition to God's word if you have the view that says, you know, I really don't need the church. All God really wants for me is to love him, and I do. You're not scoring with scripture if you say that. Because, yeah, God wants you to love him, but what he actually calls you to is to love one another. We're going to look at that in the, in the next few weeks the extent to which God has called us to each other. He's called you to be joined together in the life of a local church. He doesn't doesn't take Christians and let them exist in isolation. No, he has a place for them, each and every one of them, for them for them to be joined together, fitly framed together with other believers. Listening to a podcast on Sunday morning is not what this verse has in mind. Following the life of a church that you were a part of, but it's a thousand miles away, that's that's not what this is talking about. Putting more emphasis on parachurch ministry, and I have a great love and and, and recognize the need for parachurch ministry, but putting all your chips into that corner, it's not what Paul's describing here. Though no church is 100% perfect, having no church is 100% imperfect. So what is the church? It's a people, not a place. And how is the church built? It's built with the word of God 
in the person and work of Christ growing in the hearts of people that God has joined together. With the Word of God and the person and work of Christ growing in the hearts of people that God has joined together. That is how the church is built. Just by way of conclusion, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 6, 1 Kings chapter 6, that when the great temple of, of Solomon was constructed, if you remember, the Israelites, they, they didn't have a temple throughout most of their history. David didn't get to build the temple. Obviously, when they were wandering, they didn't have a temple. But Solomon shows up as king, and he gets to build the promised temple. And when it was constructed, uh, chapter 6, verse 7 of 1 Kings says, Only blocks dressed at the quarry were used. And no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Now, to my knowledge, no building in history was ever built the way the temple was built. Think about it. Its construction at the site was almost silent. So holy was the work, it was almost silent. Silently, silently, the stones were moved and added, and the building rose and rose and rose. So it is with the church. We do not hear what's going on inside human minds and hearts as God, the Holy Spirit, creates new life as he adds individuals to the temple that he is building. But God is working. In this room this morning, we don't, we don't hear that person or that woman or that man that, that God is working in, he's moving in, he's, do, he's doing a, a, an amazing birth through the Holy Spirit in their heart and life right now because they're hearing a message, they're understanding the truth, they're seeing that Jesus Christ is their only hope. And we can't hear that work, but it's going on. Silently, it's going on. And if that person is you, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can trust in Jesus Christ. And you can not just stay there, but you can actually belong to a people that will serve you and that you'll serve and that you'll grow alongside of and that you'll be fit together with. And no, you can't see how in the world it is you'll fit. You'll fit because God has designed you to fit. And though we can't quite understand how in the world is he going to fit, you, you will fit because God has figured out a way for you to fit because he is in the business of building a people called the church. And as he fits us together, he shaves, up our, uh, he shaves off our sharp edges and he files us down and he, and, he, and he builds us into the thing that he wants us to be. And it requires us being together and shaped together and growing together and fit together and going out and getting other stones to come and be joined together with us. Once again, you probably saw it as you read through this text. This is Trinitarian work on display in this passage. You see all three members there. In Christ, we are joined together. We're joined together into a dwelling place for God, and this is accomplished by the work of the Spirit. The Godhead, all three persons fully vested in building God's people, the church. None of you are here by accident. None of you. God is building his church. He's building it on his word and upon Jesus Christ, and he's building it up with living stones. That's you and that's me. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for your word and what you reveal to us in it. We thank you that we can build upon it, that it is trustworthy and that it is authoritative and that it is sufficient to shape and form the life of our church as we look to the, to the primary subject in it, which is your Son, Jesus Christ. Make us a people obsessed with Jesus Christ. That his place in our church is that of cornerstone, and that that is such a reality that Christ and the gospel forms and aligns and shapes everything we do here. It, it, it shapes and aligns every person we pass in the hallway, every conversation we have, every committee meeting that gathers. All of those things are connected to Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, who showed us more grace than we could have ever dreamt up on our own. Lord, as we sit in here together, we thank you for each other. We ask, how is it? How is it that you are going to use me in connection with these other living stones in this room? Help us to ask that question, and, and then help us to be very open to the answer. Lord, you want to build your church. And it's mind-boggling that you'll use people to do it. Imperfect, broken, weird people to do it. But God, we, we're on board with you and how you want to do that. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. We all stand together. Always look for that song that complements well what what the teaching has been, and I kept uh, uh, looking for some, some different options, and, and I kept coming back to this old song um, written by Sam Wesley. Um, and you'll know why, because of the title, The Church's One Foundation, rich in lyrics, uh, lyrical imagery. And um, um, so let's just sing together, and I invite you to lift your voices strong as we sing. The Church's One
said, amen. Thank you for uh, being here today and for being a part of this gathering, worshiping together with us. It's been good to hear from God's Word today. Just a few things before you head on out of here today. Um, there, uh, as maybe you're aware, checking out your bulletin there, ladies, there's been a reduction in the ticket price for the Beth Moore Conference. I sound like a salesman now. Uh, only $25 for, per ticket for those things. That's coming up this um, Friday evening and Saturday in Tulsa. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Um, also, if you're able, and you heard this before, if you're able to give blood, I think those guys are sticking around to 1 o'clock or so today, so we'd welcome you to do that as well. So God bless you. Go in his peace and strength today.